Section 3 of Ghosts I Have Met and Some Others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ghosts I Have Met and Some Others by John Kendrick Bangs. Section 3. The Mystery of Barney O'Rourke. A very irritating thing has happened. My hired man, a certain Barney O'Rourke, an American citizen of much political influence, a good gardener, and, according to his lights, a gentleman, has got very much the best of me, and all because of certain effusions which from time to time have emanated from my pen. It is not often that one's literary chickens come home to roost in such a vengeful fashion as some of mine have recently done, and I have no doubt that as this story progresses he who reads will find much sympathy for me rising up in his breast. As the matter stands, I am torn with conflicting emotions. I am very fond of Barney, and I have always found him truthful hitherto, but exactly what to believe now I hardly know. The main thing to bring my present trouble upon me, I am forced to believe, is the fact that my house has been in the past, and may possibly still be, haunted. Why my house should be haunted at all I do not know, for it has never been the scene of any tragedy that I am aware of. I built it myself, and it is paid for. So far as I am aware, nothing awful of a material nature has ever happened within its walls, and yet it appears to be, for the present at any rate, a sort of clubhouse for inconsiderate, if not strictly horrid things, which is a most unfair dispensation of the fates, for I have not deserved it. If I were in any sense a bluebeard, and spent my days cutting ladies' throats as a pastime, if I had a pleasing habit of inviting friends up from town over Sunday, and dropping them into oubliettes connecting my library with dark, dank, and snaky subterranean dungeons, if guests who dine at my house came with a feeling that the chances were they would never return to their families alive, it might be different. I shouldn't and couldn't blame a house for being haunted if it were the dwelling-place of a bloodthirsty ruffian such as I have indicated. But that is just what it is not. It is not the home of a lover of fearful crimes. I would not walk ten feet for the pleasure of killing any man, no matter who he is. On the contrary, I would walk twenty feet to avoid doing it, if the emergency should ever arise. I, even if it were that fiend who sits next me at the opera, and hums the opera through from beginning to end. There have been times, I must confess, when I have wished I might have had the oubliettes to which I have referred constructed beneath my library, and leading to the coal-bins or to some long-forgotten well, but that was two or three years ago, when I was in politics for a brief period, and delegations of willing and thirsty voters were daily and nightly swarming in through every one of the sixteen doors on the ground floor of my house, which my architect, in a riotous moment, smuggled into the plans in the guise of French windows. I shouldn't have minded, then, if the earth had opened up and swallowed my whole party, so long as I did not have to go with them, but under such provocation as I had, I do not feel that my residence is justified in being haunted after its present fashion, because such a notion entered my mind. We cannot help our thoughts, much less our notions, and punishment for that which we cannot help is not in strict accord with latter-day ideas of justice. It may occur to some hypercritical person to suggest that the English language has frequently been murdered in my den, and that it is its horrid course which is playing havoc at my home, crying out to heaven and flaunting its bloody wounds in the face of my conscience, but I can pass such an aspersion as that by with contemptuous silence, for even if it were true it could not be set down as willful assassination on my part, since no sane person who needs a language as much as I do would ever in cold blood kill any of the many that lie about us. Furthermore, the English language is not dead. It may not be met with often in these days, but it is still encountered with sufficient frequency in the works of Henry James and Miss Libby to prove that it still lives and I am told that one or two members of our consular service abroad can speak it, though as for this I cannot write with certainty, 
for I have never encountered one of these exceptions to the general rule. The episode with which this narrative has to deal is interesting in some ways, though I doubt not some readers will prove sceptical as to its realism. There are suspicious minds in the world, and with these every man who writes of truth must reckon. To such I have only to say that it is my desire and intention to tell the truth as simply as it can be told by James, and as truthfully as Sylvanus Cobb ever wrote. Now then, the facts of my story are these. In the latter part of last July, expecting a meeting of friends at my house, in connection with a question of the good government of the city in which I honestly try to pay my taxes, I ordered one hundred cigars to be delivered at my residence. I ordered several other things at the same time, but they have nothing whatever to do with this story, because they were all, every single bottle of them, consumed at the meeting, but of the cigars, about which the strange facts of my story cluster, at the close of the meeting a goodly two dozen remained. This is surprising, considering that there were quite six of us present, but it is true. Twenty-four by actual count remained when the last guest left me. The next morning I and my family took our departure for a month's rest in the mountains. In the hurry of leaving home, and the worry of looking after three children and four times as many trunks, I neglected to include the cigars in my impedimenta, leaving them in the opened box upon my library table. It was careless of me, no doubt, but it was an important incident, as the sequel shows. The incidents of the stay in the hills were commonplace, but during my absence from home strange things were going on there, as I learned upon my return. The place had been left in charge of Barney O'Rourke, who upon my arrival assured me that everything was all right, and I thanked and paid him. "'Wait a minute, Barney,' I said, as he turned to leave me. "'I've got a cigar for you.' I may mention, incidentally, that in the past I had kept Barney on very good terms with his work by treating him in a friendly, sociable way, but to my great surprise, upon this occasion, he declined advances. His face flushed very red as he observed that he had given up smoking. "'Well, wait a minute, anyhow,' said I. "'There are one or two things I want to speak to you about.' and I went to the table to get a cigar for myself. The box was empty. Instantly the suspicion which has doubtless flashed through the mind of the reader flashed through my own. Barney had been tempted and had fallen. I recalled his blush, and on the moment realized that in all my vast experience with hired men in the past I had never seen one blush before. The case was clear. My cigars had gone to help Barney through the hot summer. "'Well, I declare,' I cried, turning suddenly upon him. I left a lot of cigars here when I went away, Barney. I know you did, sir, said Barney, who had now grown white and rigid. I saw them myself, sir. There were twenty-four of them. You counted them, eh? I asked, with an elevation of my eyebrows which to those who know me conveys the idea of suspicion. I did, sir. In your absence I was responsible for everything here, and the morning you went away I took a quick inventory, sir, of the removables, he answered, fingering his cap nervously. That's how it was, sir and them twenty-four cigars was lying there in the box for in me eyes. "'And how do you account for the removal of these removables, as you call them, Barney?' I asked, looking coldly at him. He saw he was under suspicion, and he winced, but pulled himself together in an instant. "'I expected the question, sir,' he said calmly, "'and I have me answer already. Them cigars were smoke, sir.' "'Doubtless,' said I, with an ill-suppressed sneer. "'And by whom?' "'Cats?' I added, with a contemptuous shrug of my shoulders. His answer overpowered me. It was so simple, direct, and unexpected. "'Spooks,' he replied laconically. I gasped in astonishment and sat down. My knees simply collapsed under me, and I could no more have continued to stand up than fly. "'What?' 
I cried, as soon as I had recovered sufficiently to gasp out the word. "'Spooks,' replied Barney. "'Up came a boat like this, sir. It was a Friday two weeks after you left. I became uneasy-like along about nine o'clock in the evening, and I thought I'd come round here and see if everything was straight. Me wife says it's foolish of me, sir, and I says maybe so, but I can't get it out of my head that something's wrong. "'You lock everything up safe when you left,' says she. "'I always does,' says I. "'Then it's a whim,' says she. "'No,' says I, "'it's a sensation. "'If it was a whim, "'it'd be you as would have it. "'That's what I says, "'severely like, sir, "'and out I starts. "'It was ten o'clock when I got here. "'The night was dark and blown like March, "'raining and thundering "'till you couldn't hear yourself tink. "'I walked down the walk, sir, "'and barn the thunder "'everything was quiet. "'I tried the doors, "'all tight as a politician. "'Still, I thinks, "'I'll go inside. "'Quiet as a lamb it was, sir, but on a sudden, as I was about to go back home again, I smelt smoke. Fire? I cried excitedly. I said smoke, sir, said Barney, whose calmness now was beautiful to look upon. He was so serenely confident of his position. Doesn't smoke involve a fire? I demanded. Sometimes, said Barney. I thought you meant a conflagration, sir. The smoke I smelt was cigars. Ah, I observed, I'm glad you are coming to the point. Go on. There is a difference. "'There is that,' said Barney pleasantly. He was getting along so swimmingly. "'This smoke, as I say, was cigar smoke, so I groped me way cautious-like up the back stairs, and listens by the library door. All quiet as a lamb. Tin, bold-like, I steps into the room, and nearly drops with the scare I have on me in a minute. The room was dark as a baverat, sir, but in different spots ranged round in the chairs was six little red balls of fire. "'Barney!' I cried. "'True, sir,' said he, "'and tobacco smoke rolling out to you "'that thought there was a fire in a cigar store. "'It queered me, sir, for a minute, "'and me impulse is to run, "'but I gets me courage up, "'springs across the room, "'touches the electric button, "'and, pst, every gaslight on the floor lights up.' "'That was rash, Barney,' I put in sarcastically. "'It was in your interest, sir,' said he impressively. "'And you saw what?' I queried, "'growing very impatient.' Why, I hope never to see again, sir, said Barney, compressing his lips solemnly. Six empty chairs, sir, with six cigars as high up from the floor as a man's mouth, puffing and a-blowing out smoke like a chimney, and every once in a while the cigars would go down, kinda, and be tapped like as with a finger of a smoker, and the ashes would fall off under the floor. Well, said I, go on, what next? I want to run away, sir, but I stood rooted to the spot with a surprise I had on me till finally every cigar was burnt to a stub and thrown in the fireplace, where I found him next morning when I come to clean up, proving it wasn't only a dream I'd been having. I arose from my chair and paced the room for two or three minutes, wondering what I could say. Of course the man was lying, I thought. Then I pulled myself together. "'Barney,' I said severely, "'what's the use? Do you expect me to believe any such cock-and-bull story as that?' "'No, sir,' said he, "'but them's the facts.' "'Do you mean to say that this house of mine is haunted?' I cried. "'I don't know,' said Barney quietly. "'I didn't think so before.' "'Before? Before what? When?' I asked. "'When you was writing stories about it, sir,' said Barney respectfully. "'You've had a black horsehair so if he turned white in a single night, sir, for the sight of horror is its witness. "'You've had the air of your own head stand on in like tinpenny nails at what you've seen here in this very room yourself, sir. "'You've had ghosts doing all sorts of things in the stories you've been writing for years.' And you've always swore they was true, sir. I didn't believe em when I read em, but when I see them cigars being smoked up before me eyes by invisible things, I says to myself, says I, the boss ain't such a dumb lawyer after all. 
I follow your writing, sir, very careful and close-like, and I don't see how, after the tales you've told about your own experiences right here, you can say consistently that this one of mine ain't so. But why, Barney, I asked to confuse him, when a thing like this has happened, didn't you write and tell me? Barney chuckled as only one of his species can chuckle. <laughs> write and tell you, he cried. Be gory, sir, if I could write at all at all. It's not you I'd be writing that tale to, but to the editor of the paper that you write for. A tale like that is worth ten dollars to any man, especially if it's true. But I never learned the art. And with that Barney left me overwhelmed. Subsequently I gave him the ten dollars which I think his story is worth, but I must confess that I am in a dilemma. After what I have said about my supernatural guests, I cannot discharge Barney for lying, but I'll be blessed if I can quite believe that his story is accurate in every respect. If there should happen to be among the readers of this tale any who have made a sufficiently close study of the habits of hired men and ghosts to be able to shed any light upon the situation, nothing would please me more than to hear from them. I may add in closing that Barney has resumed smoking. End of section 3